You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We are another terrific way to usher in a new year is to talk about the Massachusetts Review. And we have three very special guests here in studio to talk about the Massachusetts Review. This issue just sounds uh, really incredible. We uh, we have with us um, Emily Wojcik. Um, uh, Shelja. Shelja. And you told, you only have to tell me four times, right? Patel. And you are uh, the editor of this issue, right? And we, uh, we also have Eddie Clifford, who is with us, an associate editor of the Massachusetts Review. Bill, this incredible uh, publication you have been airing um, issue after issue for a long time. Well, we, we are we are so pleased to have with us on the air uh, editors uh, from the Massachusetts Review. It is a distinguished quarterly. It is, to me, one of the gems of the Valley, and I think perhaps underappreciated just because the idea of a quarterly literary magazine, which is not really just literary, it's also the arts and culture and it really public has affairs. public affairs. And here it is so many years later, what, 50 years in the Massachusetts Review? This and is actually year 65. 65. This is year 65. Wow. And it was founded, the Massachusetts Review was founded uh, by some, I think, distinguished members of the uh, UMass Amherst faculty uh, back when. Yeah, it was founded in 1959 uh, by Jules a uh, man named uh, John Hicks. Um, no, no relation to our current editor, who is Jim Hicks. Um, and yeah, it was, it was founded primarily to be an answer to a sort of literary magazine trend that had happened post-World War II that began to argue that the arts shouldn't be political, that they should be uh, simply art for art's sake. And our founding editors said, no, that's, that's not right. That was um, Jules? That was Jules. Jules Chemetsky? All of them. And, and saying, no, the, the very act of saying this art is not political is by definition political. Um, and so the magazine was founded to publish things like black arts poets and writers and feminist writers in the 1960s and 70s and a lot of Jewish activists. And, you know, we have an incredible lineup um, of, of writers dating back to, to 1959 all the way up to today. And that's part of what we were doing with this current issue was a 50-year retrospective looking back at a seminal issue that was published in 1972 called Woman and Issue. And this was Woman Revisited, trying to think about what does that mean today in 2023, which is when we published it, um, versus 1973. And is there an event occurring with regard to this new edition that we should know about? There is. We're going to be launching the edition on January 13th, which is a Saturday, at 3 p.m., and that will be at the Boutel Day Poetry Center at Smith College, which is in Wright Hall. It's right in the center of campus. Um, and it's open and free and open to the public. I would like to know if you know, uh, who are the readers of the Massachusetts Review? Uh, I know it goes to a lot of libraries and institutions, uh, but it also has individual subscribers. And who's the audience? Sure. I mean, this is something I say a lot to our advertisers and, and such. 
I mean, our audience is educated. Uh, it tends to be a bit older, and we've been working hard to, to skew a bit younger as well. Um, but our, our audience is educated and often college graduates. Um, and we do skew politically left, though we, of course, don't have a political point of view. Of course, um, of course. Of course. <laughs> um, so we are, it, it's, it's an interestingly um, activist and uh, outspoken, I think, in the best possible way, audience. Okay, um, tell us one more time where, where this uh, presentation of the new edition of the Massachusetts of Review course. is going to be. So it's going to be um, January 13th, which is a Saturday at 3 p.m. in the Boutel Day Poetry Center at Smith College. Okay, can we uh, hear about what is in this uh, edition? And I'd appreciate if you'd explain again, this is looking back 50 years later on a edition of the Massachusetts Review and I think brings to life and to light a lot of the issues that were present then and are still present now. Can we hear about this edition, please? Selja Patel, are you, the, you were the editor of this edition. Yes, I was one of three guest editors of this edition with Nicole Shawan and Zoe Tuck. And my goal for this edition was to make it internationalist, to make it read as if it could have been curated from Abidjan or Ankara as much as Amherst. I really wanted to have a global diversity of feminist voices in this issue, and I think we achieved that. We have Susan Abulhawa, the world's best-selling Palestinian novelist, in this issue with three chapters of her new as yet unpublished novel, wow. which is a major score for us. We have Lebo Mashile, who is a spoken word and TV superstar in South Africa. We have Wairimu Muriti, a young Kenyan writer who's written an amazing piece about um, black women's music from Nina Simone to Miriam Makeba. We've got an incredible range of voices in this issue. Yeah, and I would just add, too, that we also have a lot of new publications and established writers, which is something the Massachusetts Review is really about, you know, poems and stories that we might see in a collection published two or three years from now. Would the three of you be kind enough to tell us what you, you're, you're all editors, you have different responsibilities. What are they? Let's start with you, Eddie. Eddie Clifford. Sure. So I'm the associate editor, which is mostly doing email, but it's an amazing opportunity to be able to email with uh, established writers that I've admired and read before. Um, and I handle the social media as well, which, as we were talking about, bringing in the younger audiences, getting traction on Twitter or now X, I suppose, and just also putting the magazine together, trying to hear what our guest editors and our masthead editors want to do and make it happen. I'm the public affairs editor, and I define my role as causing good trouble. So to give you an example, I recently commissioned a piece from a German academic, Sabine Brook, which we ran on our blog. She wrote about her anguish about the constraints on public discourse in Germany at this moment in academic and arts and intellectual circles around discussing Germany's role with regard to the situation in Gaza and in Palestine. That blog post ended up being read by Naomi Klein and John Cusack and retweeted on Twitter. Sabine Brook was contacted by Al Jazeera and Der Spiegel 
because her piece broke a silence that many people had felt, but nobody in Germany had had the courage to give her a platform to publish it. We at the Massachusetts Review gave her that platform and broke that silence. Wow, that's Shelja Patel. Um, and, and how about you, Emily Wojcik? Uh, so I'm the managing editor. Um, my job has actually, Eddie has made my job much easier. Uh, he was being modest because he also does very much of the editorial work at this point. Um, but our jobs essentially are to to bring all of the writers into the magazine quite literally. Um, we get the pieces ready for publication. We send it to our designer. We do all of that. And then on, the, on top of that, I also am the business manager, so I also do all of the grant writing, all of the development and fundraising. We are a nonprofit, and we are actually an independent nonprofit, meaning Although we are housed at UMass, it's because they donate space to us, but we are actually an independent 501c3. So all of the money that we are supported by, I have to make sure we raise. And we did. Could we hear some of what's in this edition? And is it titled Woman? It's titled Woman Revisited. So it's, it references the original woman in 1972, and we're revisiting it. I would, I'll read an excerpt from the essay by Wairimo Muriti, a Kenyan writer. There is a house in New Orleans. Track one, House of the Rising Sun. There is a house in New Orleans. It's called the Rising Sun. Some say it was a coffee house, which may mean that it was a hotel or a brothel, maybe both. Some say it was a women's prison, perhaps a jail for sex workers undergoing unsuccessful treatment for syphilis. Others still say it likely did not exist outside the lyric. Today it's a bed and breakfast in honour of the ex-versions of the song. Miriam Makeba recorded three verses of the folk song of ambiguous origin for her debut solo album Miriam Makeba in 1960, the year of the Sharpville massacre, the year her daughter joined her in New York City, the year her mother died, the year South Africa cancelled her passport. Nina Simone recorded six verses for her live album, Nina Simone at the Village Gate, in 1961, the year she was first billed with Miriam Makeba for a benefit concert at Carnegie Hall, the year her fiancé pulled a gun on her, the year she started to wear a pageboy wig with a bejeweled barrette. Odetta recorded her version in 1962, the year she came under fire for trying to be a blues singer, the year she performed in Atlanta for the first time, the year before she recorded One Grain of Sand. I start this essay with this song because I found myself tracking the journey it has taken through black women's throats and across black women's geographies. The music of the rising sun makes it sound like a raucous place, a building that cannot contain the riotous excess of black enjoyment that pours out of its doors and windows and into the street. In fact, it sounds like another place I have encountered in Somi's oeuvre, a music salon in Lagos. Wow. Uh, Shelja Patel, that is just incredible. And we're here with Emily Wojcik and uh, Shelja and with Eddie Clifford, and we're talking about this uh, quarterly's uh, incredible issue of the Massachusetts Review and um, called Women Revisited. We're going to be right back and continue our conversation right after this. 
The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Miss an episode of Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg? Want to hear the stories and perspectives of local business leaders? Click on podcasts at whmp.com. Talk the Talk, Western Mass Business Show, Financial Fitness with the Money Doctor, The Hustler Files, Panorama, and more. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local talk in the Valley for the Valley. WHMP.com. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op kitchen is always cooking. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Order sandwich platters or anything platters for lunchtime, party time, or anytime. You like to bake? The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven, bread and brownies, cakes and cookies. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. What does it feel like to file with TaxLayer and get your guaranteed maximum refund? It feels like the last level of a video game, facing off against the final boss who stands between you and your refund. All your refund is belong to me. Using the power of TaxLayer like a secret power-up he doesn't see coming. Only the most tax confident can defeat me. Throwing your laptop at his video game face and watching him crumble into a giant pile of shiny coin tax refunds. Oh, not fair. You use TaxLayer. Start for free and get your guaranteed maximum refund. TaxLayer. File fearlessly. Having repairs done in your apartment should never come with strings attached, like being harassed and constantly pressured for sexual favors. My landlord told me my rent would be free if I gave him something in exchange. The Fair Housing Act protects you from harassment by anyone associated with your housing, including someone making unwelcome sexual advances. If this happens to you, file a complaint with HUD. No strings attached. To learn more, visit HUD.gov slash fair housing. If you fear for your safety, call 911. A public service message from HUD in partnership with the National Fair Housing Alliance. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are back and we're talking about the Massachusetts Review, that incredible quarterly. We're just so lucky to have in studio uh, three of the editors of the Massachusetts Review. And we're talking about uh, this quarter's issue, Women Revisited, which is a look back at 50 years ago, an issue of women. Um, so... Bill, you were going to uh, ask one of our editors to do another reading. Please, uh, Shilja. I'm going to read an, from the excerpt by Susan Abulhawa, <clears throat> the world's best-selling Palestinian novelist who gave us the first three chapters of her current manuscript in progress. It's titled, We're Going Home, My Beloved, and it begins with a story from the archive of the United Nations. In 1962... Before Israel erected the separation wall between the Lebanese village of Kufurkila and occupied Palestine, a donkey belonging to a Palestinian refugee named Laila crossed back into Palestine from a refugee camp in Lebanon. She disappeared for nearly one year in the new colonial Jewish state until the day she returned to Laila in Lebanon 
pulling a cart laden with fruits and other produce. Children followed the lone donkey as she made her way to Layla, who immediately welcomed her donkey back to the family. The joy of their reunion was short-lived, however, as the United Nations emergency personnel descended on Layla's home, demanding she relinquish the donkey because it was carrying a foal <coughs> fathered by an Israeli donkey. Of course, Layla protested. But Layla could not win. The donkey was part of her family and had returned to them on her own. But against the UN, she had no choice but to relinquish her donkey to the recent colonizers in Palestine until she gave birth, whereupon she would keep her foal and the donkey would be returned to Layla, whereupon they would keep her foal and the donkey would be returned to Layla. The UN took the pregnant donkey to the Israeli authorities waiting at the border. However, after three months, the donkey escaped again and returned to Layla. Again, the donkey arrived pulling a cart, but this time her foal ran alongside. Mere hours later, the UN and local authorities arrived again at Layla's house, demanding the foal. Terrified and crying for its mother, the foal was dragged into a military jeep and driven off towards the Nakura observation towers, where it was delivered to the Israelis, while its mother lived the rest of her life, the rest of her days, displaced and broken-hearted, with her displaced and broken-hearted human family. Wow, that is just so powerful. How do you how do you secure the writing of these renowned international authors? Why do they come to the Massachusetts Review? My role as guest editor was to reach out to all the writers that I know and love and beg them to send us work and to explain to them why the Massachusetts Review would be a good home for their work. So let me turn back if I might to uh, Emily Wojcik, who is a longtime editor, uh, along with uh, uh, Jim Hicks. Uh, why the Massachusetts Review? How do you sustain this remarkable reputation for being an entity where people really want to be published? I think a lot of that <laughs> is uh, due to Jim, who who's not here right now, um, and our, our senior editors. Um, in the last five years, we really worked hard to expand the masthead, um, both in prose and poetry, and, all, and then to create a space for a public affairs editor, to create a space for performance editors. Um, we've managed to expand the masthead quite a bit. Um, what does that mean, to expand the masthead? So it means we've added editors such as Kyom Zhang, who is an Amherst, uh, Morgan Talty, who is an indigenous writer in Maine, uh, for a long time, Genzo Duque, who just left us, and we're so sad, uh, for another magazine, um, who is a Brooklyn-based writer, uh, Ashad Nadkarni, who teaches at UMass, uh, Nathan McLean, who's a poet at Hampshire. Um, we just brought on Abigail Chabotnoy, who's an indigenous poet who just started at UMass, uh, Tanya Fernando in performance, and Dominic Peterson and Carl Hancock Rux. I mean, it's just, and of course, Shelja. Um, it's just an incredible group. And, and as a result, they all know people, and they're able to say, look, this is a place that you perhaps didn't think of because a lot of these folks aren't thinking literary magazines. But this is a place where what you have written will get published. Okay, so explain this. Sure. The Massachusetts Review, in the scheme of publishing, has 
it, for a quarterly, it's a large, it's a large run in the hard copy, and it's a beautiful and exquisite uh, uh, publication. It also has influence far beyond with the. I think it's five thousand plus as a publication run, give or take. Um, how and why does the Massachusetts Review have this kind of influence on world leaders and world events? I think just because we're publishing important people, and we're publishing important people even before everyone recognizes that they're important, but the pieces. So, for example, one of our famous, most famous pieces, we published um, Chinua Achebe's uh, essay on the heart of darkness, wherein he basically calls Joseph Conrad a, a bloody, race, bloody racist, I think is, is the term he uses. And that, at the time, Achebe was important, but he wasn't as world famous as he has as he became. And that really kickstarted the field of postcolonial studies. That really kickstarted the field of going back to white colonizing writers and saying, well, wait a minute, you've written about Africa, you've written about South America, and you've written about it from this incredibly condescending white point of view. Maybe you're wrong. Um, you know, and you think about these sort of things, and this leads to things like, you know, um, apocalypse now. Uh, it leads to this idea of these these uh, heroes and and villains being held up and and questioned. Um, and I think that's that's part of what Mass Review has to offer is this incredible history. And we published Stokely Carmichael when he was still Stokely Carmichael. We published. Um, you know, Angela Davis, we published Gwendolyn Brooks. Anais Nin and Audrey Lord were also in the original woman issue in 1972. Wow. Woman Revisited, the Massachusetts Review's edition, this quarter's edition, available at where? Where? At Broadside Books, at Amherst Books, on our website, of course, and it will be available at our event on January 13th at the Poetry Center at Smith College. Where what will happen? Where we will have we will be joined by poet Mahogany L. Brown, uh, poet Emily Hunterwaddle, and po- uh, and writer Kehan Irani, um, as well as Shelja and Zoe Tuck. Um, it's going to be an incredible event. Emily, Shelja, Eddie, thank you all so much. For being who you are for the magazine you create for all of us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Thank them for this gift of $200,000 to support the design and the initial construction costs and construction administration for roadway improvements. Great that the city is working with Smith to take action now, but was it really necessary for two people to be seriously injured over a year apart before we could make that happen? Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. WHMP Northampton and WRSI 